Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Today, we consider our study of 2 Timothy and are focused on the second chapter of this short book. Class teacher Doug Brady is deep into the study as we learn so much more about our responsibilities as Christians. The title of the lesson is The Secret to Spiritual Endurance, taken from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Our class meets every Sunday morning in the Laborn Hall, which you will find on the lower level of our new Worship Center building. We meet at 9.15 a.m. following a time of fellowship together. We love having visitors in our class and welcome them each and every week. Well, Doug has gone to the podium ready to begin this lesson, so turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2 as we begin. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. Let me just give you a quick outline of what you can expect. We have finished chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, and we have been talking about, we have talked, Paul has talked rather diplomatically in most regards to Timothy up to now. But what does he know is going on in Timothy's life? Does anybody remember? Fear. Fear. Uh, He's being intimidated. He's being attacked. He's considering doing what? Quitting. How does Paul know that? Should be very simple. The answer is two words. Holy Spirit. I guess three words. The Holy Spirit. But the fact is, that's going on because it's getting difficult in Timothy's life, both dealing with believers in the church and people outside of the church. Now, in our country today, if you want to stand up for what's right, will you be attacked by people in the church? Absolutely, you will. You know, in our household, Julie and I refer to those people as rhino Christians. I just wanted you to know that, rhino Christians. But that's happening It's going to happen here. We need to be prepared. Now, how is it that you overcome? How can you sustain and endure what's going to happen? How is it that you can finish strong? That's what Paul's going to tell Timothy in chapter 2. Then when we get to chapter 3, here comes the apostasy. And he is going to tell you what is going to happen and how horrible it was going to be. And I just want you to know that we're going there. This first chapter, Paul talked about those kind of things of lacking endurance and giving up on his calling. How should the believer respond to fears? How should the believer respond to despondency and intimidation? Paul's going to reveal the secret to success. And I want you to see it because this is important. It may be the most important lesson I teach out of this book. How 
do we succeed? Well, let's look and open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. But before we do anything, dear Father, I thank you for the time that we can spend together today. I thank you that we can look at this key and important lesson. I pray that you will help us to recognize what is going on and how we need to be prepared. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be felt with such power today that this will be his lesson and not mine, that he will speak to us in our hearts, convince us in our minds, but fulfill it in our hearts so that we will see the importance of what is going on here, what is happening in our nation and what we need to be aware of. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I want you to look in your Bibles at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, when most of us tend to look at this verse, we see it as just a transition verse, just to get us from chapter 1 into the important stuff of chapter 2. That is not true. That is a serious mistake if we tend to look at it that way. Let's start first unpacking this verse, and you see this little preposition, not preposition, conjunction, soon in there, which is translated in English, therefore. Therefore. What is, you know, the old joking saying, you always, when you see that, you ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, we need to look at it and see the purpose is because of what I said to you in chapter 2, because of the fact that you are being fearful and intimidated and that God does not intend that for you. He's not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Because he has done those things, you need to understand this. Now, you look at the next phrase, and the next phrase is, uh, you, my son. Now, we know that Timothy was not his biological child, that is, of Paul, but instead it was his spiritual progeny. And instead, he, when he says that, that is an emphatic statement. It's a statement that Paul knows that he cannot, you, my son. He knows it's an emphatic statement, and when I mean by an emphatic statement is one you can't deny. There's no question in, between Paul and Timothy, you know, for Julie to be able to say, you, my husband, it's an emphatic statement. I can't deny it. I'm her husband. Uh, there's no question. We could go down to the records department at uh, Dallas County in the records building, pull up the marriage license. You could see it. It's there. It's provable. But it's more than that. This expression speaks of a tender affection that a father would have for a son. This is talking about Paul's love for this man, Timothy. And the rest of what he has to say here is aimed first at this young man, Timothy, and then those who follow him. You see, he's going to talk about generational Christianity here in a minute. And he is aiming that direction. And he's doing it in love, but he is also doing it emphatically. Now, 
He then issues a command. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this word translated in the New American Standard, be strong, is so important to understand and it's so difficult to understand or complex to understand and how it comes about. So the first thing we have to look at is grammar. Number one, it is imperative. The mood is imperative. What does imperative move mean? Command, an admonition, a, a direction. This is something, it's, it's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It is instead a command. That's what it is in the, in the imperative mood. It is also in the present tense. What do we understand the present tense to be? It's an action taken right then. Not one that's going to be, that has been taken in the past. Not one you wait until it happens in the future. Now, when you combine the imperative mood and the present tense, it also indicates the possibility of moving forward into the future with this action because you've been given a command. You know, if I like, and we're going to see, I use Bob now as a bunch of examples because he's our star Marine here. And uh, if he was given a command by his commanding officer to post guard duty at this spot, he goes, he has to go and guard that spot. But when the commander leaves, that doesn't mean that Bob gets to leave. His action continues on into the future until he's relieved. Right, Bob? So you see this carries forward. But the most important thing about this word is the voice, the voice of this verb. Now, what does it say? Be strong. Who does it indicate when it translates it that way that should be doing the action? Timothy. That's what it sounds like. Timothy, be strong. He's doing the action. Oh, no. You see, if it's active verb, if it's active voice, the subject's doing the action. But if it's passive voice, the action is being performed on the subject. And the subject here is Timothy and the voice of this verb, passive. Timothy is not the one to be strong. But what does this word really mean? To understand how this voice works, how the passive voice works, you need to understand what this word means. And it has two meanings, but the meaning here is to receive strength, to be strengthened, to increase in strength. So it could be if you have little strength, you receive the strength. If you have some strength, it could mean new strength, adding more strength on. And if it's passive... It's not Timothy doing it. Is it Paul doing it? No. no, he can't do that. It's the Holy Spirit. I am going to give you this strength. Now, then why is it a command if it's passive? Because the concept here is as you receive this strength, use it. You know, somebody who probably misused God's strength more than anybody else is a guy named Samson. And pardon the phrase, but it seemed like he used it an awful lot for whoring, you know? It's interesting, though, if you think about it, who was the one who was the most foolish of all? That was Delilah. Delilah could have ruled the world if she'd just understand what was going on, because no one could have defeated Samson as long as he had God's power, which translated into his hair. Now, I don't want anybody making hair comments. <laughs> And their less, less hair lack of power 
so we don't want to get into that. But I want you to see, you therefore shall receive strength in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's the way I would translate it. Yes, and use it. You maybe footnote, if you're not using it, you, you failed. You didn't follow. That's the command part, to use the strength that you receive. Now, you see, we don't have, we take a whole bunch of English words to try and get across the meaning of this one word. Now, I want you to see this word just a second. It's the Greek word, endonamo. What English word do we get from endomao? Endurance. You begin to see that now? Spiritual or divine endurance is God's supplying the strength and you utilizing it. That's what it's all about. Now, we talk about this strength. Where does this strength come from? What is this strength that he promises? And it's a word that we don't understand very well. Say, wait a second. What do you mean I don't understand? The word is grace. Well, wait a second. I've studied grace. Doug, it means unmerited favor. Yes, and you view it as a concept. And most of us view it as a concept. Something that God did when we were saved. Because are we not saved by grace? Well, of course we are and were. And, but this word gave us this word endurance, and that should tell us something about what's going on here. Because for Paul, this is not just a concept, grace. Grace is so much more. And he's seeking now to tell Timothy, to inform him of the power and the strength that comes from grace. It's not just for justification. It's not just for glorification. It's for sanctification purposes, becoming Christ-like, living for our master, being faithful in what he has commanded us to do. Now, let's stop and ask ourselves a question. Is there anybody in here who would like more grace, that is strength, to do what God wants you to do? Is there anybody in here who would, oh, I think that's mostly all of us, except maybe for Mark, he didn't raise his, yes, he did. I'm just kidding him. <laughs> but is that really true? Can grace be power infusing, a source of spiritual power? Are there any other places in the scripture that talk about power being infused into the believer? And by the Lord God. Well, let's look. I went through and started looking for those. I'm starting with Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I want you to look at that. Be strong. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Do you see a comparison with that other verse in 2 Timothy 2.1? A word that stands out to you. Be strong. I, I want to mention something that will probably get me in trouble. We know about grace. This is the concept, I mean, at justification uh, of grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Now, I want you to look at something here. The word through. Look at that word through. What, have we, what were we told just last week? You're not saved by faith. You're saved by what? Grace. That person interprets this verse because it's translated by grace in the first phrase and then through faith in the second phrase. The second phrase is even stronger in the original language. It uses a little preposition 
Dia, D-I-A, Dia, Delta Epsilon Alpha. And what that, when you take a preposition like that, you can put it in several ways of whether it's nominative, genitive, ablative, dative, accusative. As you subjugate it like that, it gives meaning. In this passage, and in many others like it, where it here translated through faith, in Romans, it translates it by faith. It's the same word, dia, and it is genitive of means or instrumentality. If it is genitive of means or instrumentality, what is that saying? Salvation was by means or the instrument of our faith. Now, you have this situation where you could say, but it's also selling you being saved by grace. Absolutely, that's true. You're saved by both. Why? Because salvation occurs at the marriage of grace and faith, married together. And are we not told that we're part of the bride of Christ? Absolutely. We are married to be married to who? Jesus, the Lord God. Grace and faith married together bring salvation. And that's the way we need to understand it. But this is what's key. After you're justified, what does the scripture say you should do with faith? Is it just something you put in the bank now and it's like a life insurance policy? Look at the next verse. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. All right. How did we receive him? Grace through faith. How are we supposed to walk? Now, a lot of people will tell you, well, this says you're just supposed to walk in faith. That's shortchanging people. You need to understand that. Think about this just a second. What does this word in Paul's time mean that they would use walk? So walk in it. What does it mean? How you live. Exactly, Eddie. How you live, how you conduct yourself in that life. What your life is about. Your life should be about grace and faith. People hear that, they think, okay, grace meaning he saved me. Now I have to learn to live by faith. No, you cannot just live by faith. You can't make it. You live by the faith through the power of grace that he provides you. Grace is not limited to salvation. Grace is limited, is unlimited, and it provides you the power to live by faith. Biding in the faith of God through his grace. Now, that's what we understand. Now let's talk again. I got a little ahead of myself of this power. It wasn't Jerry. That was me. Just so you know, he's come back strong. Oh, be strong. You notice he's giving us this strength. Let's look at a second verse. I want you to see Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Power infused into the believer. 1 Corinthians 2, 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Faith mixing with the power of God. Ephesians 3, 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. You see, all of these are about infusing power. Now, if you happened to be a nitpicking lawyer, you might be able to say, yes, this talks about power coming in, but it doesn't ever say the power's from grace. Well, that's why I reserved a few verses uh, to add on to these. We'll start with the best one. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he has said to me, that is, the Lord said to Paul, 
My grace is sufficient for you. What does it mean, sufficient for you? It's all you need. Sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So how did Paul understand that phrase, that statement to mean? Most gladly, therefore, I rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of God may dwell in me. That is, his grace is sufficient for me to have the, all the power I need. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, it says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Where did he get the power to do all the things he did? Now you think about, has anybody ever advanced the cause of Christ more than the Apostle Paul? How could he keep doing all this stuff? You know, not only was a full-time missionary, he also worked and supported himself by making tents and selling them. This man got his power through God's grace. You look at it again, say in Hebrews 4.16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Grace for that power when we need it. Or in Hebrews 13, 9, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which those who are so occupied were not benefited. The strengthened by grace. Do you see that? Grace provides the power to the believer to be the man or woman that God has called them to be. That's what he is trying. That is the secret to living the way, we're, and that is the source of the power. Now, that's the first thing he's telling Timothy as he's preparing him for what he's going to do. The second thing he tells him is, you need to be about this. What is the about this. That's found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach them also, to others also. What is he telling Timothy he needs to do? Teach. Teach. He needs to teach. Now, I want you to think about this a second. Has everybody in this room been given the gift of teacher? Now, in fact, most of us have not. Does that mean you shouldn't teach? Does God give you... Let me ask you something, Chris. I'm going to ask you about your wife. Does God given her the gift of teacher? Does she have a responsibility to teach? What was it? Three boys and one girl? Two boys and two girls. Did you teach those children as they were growing up and train them? Do you participate at all in, in teaching uh, the grandkids? In fact, the saving grace for many grandchildren is the grandmother who's teaching them like Timothy had. We all have an obligation for teaching. Should a husband help teach his wife God's Word? If she'll listen. <laughs> well, aren't you fortunate, Chris, aren't you fortunate that you do have a wife who listens to you? In all serious, yeah, you definitely married over your head. But the fact is, we need to understand these things. We can teach. Can uncles and aunts teach nephews and nieces? Yes, they can. Can friends help teach other friends? 
Can neighbors help teach neighbors? Now, notice what he's saying here in this concept. This second way to build spiritual perseverance is that you will teach, and then you will be able to endure. Teaching builds perseverance and endurance in the life of the believers. Do you have a question? Yes. Uh, you might, some of the people here might not know the story of your mom teaching you. That's the lesson that you've learned in my life. You know, a lot of women in my mother's generation were, they would pray and say, God, give me a pastor, a preacher, give me a missionary. Some would say, give me a doctor. Very few would ever pray, give me a lawyer. But my mother didn't pray for those things. She started praying, give me a Bible teacher. And she didn't just let the prayers go and not do anything about it. Uh, she started in singing spiritual songs to me before I could even talk. She then, once I could understand language better, she started reading to me out of uh, Bible stories. I can remember a time she told me about when I was four. And, you know, you didn't start going to school when I was there until at least you were five and went to kindergarten. But at four years old, she was reading me out of this Bible study book, Bible story book, and she said, I told her I could read that. She said, you can't read. I said, yeah, I can. And she said, okay. And she gave me the book. And I started reading. And then when I got to the end of the page, she, didn't know, she noticed I didn't switch over to the next page, <laughs> nor did I turn the page. But I had it memorized because I had heard it so much. And she used to say, when you know how children come to parents and say, Mom, I want one of these. All right? You memorize these five verses, and I'll get you one of these. And I want you to go sit in this teacher's class, as we got later. And then I want you to hear this teacher's class. And you need to hear this teacher and go to his class. And she helped to do that and establish that in me. My mom was all about Bible teaching, if you know her. As I was growing up, I can remember many times I would be somewhere, and there was a rather attractive young lady there. And I would go up to talk to her. And after saying, she'd say, wait a second, is your mother Kay Brady? And I'd say, yes. She gave me a Bible. And you could see that way of concentrating on teaching the scriptures, what she was all about. Now look how Paul says to Timothy in this verse about, about teaching. One sure way of being strengthened in grace is to transmit to others the trust that has been embedded in your heart and enshrined in your memory of the scriptures. This is to build a spiritual progeny. Now, how did Paul teach? Well, you know how he taught? He taught how Jesus taught. Well, how did Jesus taught, teach? The best way I can describe it is like a science professor in college teaches. If you've ever taken a class in college on science, and I can remember in a chemistry class I took, there would be three days a week we would go and we would sit and listen to a lecture. But two days a week, we would go to the lab. Jesus taught exactly the same way. I want you to, to think about this. Do you remember how he explained to his disciples, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. But then what did he do? He fed 
5,000 people with three small barley loaves. He said, I'm the light of the world. But the fact is, five barley loaves were used to feed 5,000 people because he's the bread of life. He also said, I'm the light of the world. And then what did he do? He healed the blind man who had been born blind. He didn't, wasn't blinded during his lifetime. He was born blind without sight. He'd never seen anything. And God healed him. Jesus healed him to say, I am the light of the world. Then he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And what did he do? He raised Lazarus from the dead. He intentionally waited till Lazarus died. Don't you think about this a second. Julie, let me ask you a question. Would you think it would be cooler, or, or if you were given a choice ahead of time, Jesus is here, your husband is grievously ill, and he's going to die. To get there before Jesus come in, before your husband dies, and heal him, or to let him die, let him be dead for three days, and then raise him from the dead. Which one, first or second? Second. Then he could tell you what it was like. I'd like to speak to Lazarus and hear what it was like for that three days. But that's the way Jesus taught. Paul did the same thing. He would take people like Timothy and Titus on his missionary journeys. And he, they would watch him as he plants churches. And he grows people and disciples them. And then what did he do? He said, Titus, there's a church down here in Cyprus. I, I want you to be in charge of these churches. Oh, and there's a church over here in Asia Minor, Timothy, called the Church of Ephesus. Don't, don't be concerned that it's the most important church in the New Testament world at this time. I want you to be the pastor. I'm appointing you. You see what he would do? He would teach, train, and then put them in the same positions. Didn't the Lord Jesus Christ do that? Now, not, you're not my disciples anymore. You're now my apostles. And I'm sending you out into the world to spread the gospel. Jesus didn't spread the gospel anywhere else but in Israel. That's the way he taught. Now, notice this concept uh, of generations uh, that I want you to see. Look at this verse again, 2 Timothy 2.2. The things which you have heard from me. Who's the first generation of believers there? Paul. All right, what's next? Uh, which you have heard. You have heard. Who's, who's the you? Timothy. Timothy. That's the second generation. Next one, entrust to faithful men. That's the third generation. And what does he expect those faithful men to do who will be able to teach others? Entrust to faithful men. Entrust. What is that saying? Ones that you can trust to be faithful. Did Jesus just teach everybody or did he spend his time teaching people who he could trust? People he could trust. Let me show you some examples here. One about Paul in Acts 19, 8 through 10, it says this, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. Now, that was with the Jews. He tried to, to, to work with them and they would not accept Jesus. So verse nine, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them. And took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. He just took the ones who had become believers, who were now disciples of the Lord. He took them to the school. And they started reaching out to the Gentiles. And this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. 
Notice what he's happening. He is teaching people. Is Paul going out and spreading the gospel all over the Asia Minor? No. no, the ones he's taught are doing that. Do you see that? This is generational as a result of doing that. Where do you have churches? You have churches in Colossae. You have churches in Thyatira. You have churches in Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And Paul is saying there's group teachings like where there were many witnesses and there's one-on-one teaching. But we need to be about building into others. You know, some people think, well, you know what? I went out and I shared the gospel with this person and they receive Christ. So I've done my job. Is that what God calls us to do? Chris, what's the next step called? Follow up? That's what we're supposed to be about. Follow up. Could you imagine a mother having a baby and said, well, you know, I've given birth to this child. That's my job. I'll set her over here and she's on her own now. (laughs) You can't do that. Not at all. Now, I know there's some mothers in here wish they could, but the fact is, We need to entrust it to faithful men who will protect the gospel message. That's what's important to hear to to Paul is protecting the gospel message. We have to protect it. That's why we entrust it to faithful men. That's why he built into those 11 so strongly. That's why he took the time to spend with Paul for three years to make sure they knew, and was Paul all about protecting the, the message? That's what he was all about. And we have to be, when we hear someone who distorts it, what should we do? That's not right. Let me tell you what is right. What if that means we're going to get in trouble? So be it. So, I want you to understand that, and I want you to see that. All right. Jesus, you remember, spoke in parables. I'm going to jump to John 2. 23 through 25. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in him or in his name. Now, there are some people who want to say, that's really not about people becoming true believers. Pastio ace, that's the Greek phrase, believed in. That's the phrase that is used throughout scripture talking about salvation. Believed in. You would find that same phrase in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believed in his name. Same, same wording. So these are people become believers who believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Not entrusting himself. Why wouldn't he entrust himself to them? He did not believe they would be faithful in carrying the message out and doing what the message required. So he didn't, for he knew all men because he did not need anyone to testify concerning himself because he knew what was in man. Those could not be trusted with the message. But he had a group, and eventually it ended up 120. Candace. People that saw Jesus work signs, miracles... (coughs) Seeing him do it did not. Believing in him as a result, yes. That's why we can use those as examples today. What he did, of course, the greatest miracle was raising himself from the dead. Some people say, well, wait, Scripture says uh, all three members of the Godhood participated in Jesus' resurrection. He did, the Holy Spirit did, and the Father did. Chris. 
No, you should never eliminate mass evangelism. And you remember what Jesus said when Jesus saw that was in the Samaria. He saw the people coming out following that woman. He said, the fields are ripe unto harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers. Yeah, into his harvest. I should have known. You know, Steve's a walking concordance and he's got those passages down straight. You can entrust the message to him because he will be faithful in saying it accurately. So the thing is, that's what we need. We've got to start praying, Lord, raise up people. Bring in people. Whatever it takes, these people are fledglings and they need your help. And you think God says, no, I'm going to let them do it on their own. He will make provision. We don't know how necessarily, but he will. Now, let's move on quickly to 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Let me tell you, over this next passage, he is going to give Timothy a number of portraits or examples of endurance, of spiritual perseverance, of finishing strong. He's going to just get a whole number of these. And this is the first one. We only have time today to look at the first one. Hopefully we can finish it. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says this. Suffer hardship with me. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. First to understand there is this phrase, suffer hardship with me. Kakopatheo. What does it mean? It means to suffer evils or hardship or troubles for the purpose of achieving something. Suffer this hardship with me. Was Paul suffering hardship? Did he tell Timothy, well, I don't think the hardship will come to you. I have tried to make certain over these last weeks, have I ever told you, well, you, you're going to escape any persecution. No, we're not. It's coming. The, the worst thing is, is our children and grandchildren are going to see it much worse than me. You know, I started thinking, you know, maybe I've got an eighth or two ninths of my life left. They've got a lot longer than me, and this world is getting so wicked so progressively. It's coming. And in fact, when we get to chapter 3, you're going to see the apostasy and the persecution that is coming. And it, it's, So he says, suffer with me. You know, this is active aorist imperative. And it's a command. It's not a suggestion. And God understands, you will not survive without my power. So don't give up, because then you lose the power. You can't give up. Now, he says as a good soldier, he uses two words, entangles and affairs. He, as a good soldier, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of every... Is there something that is entangling you that prevents you from serving the Lord the way he wants you to? Does that mean we just quit everything and then just say, Lord, tell me what you want me to do? No. This same concept is shared with us over in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lie, lay aside every encumbrance 
and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, is the sin the same thing as every encumbrance? No, it's not. You can have encumbrances of things that were good because Satan doesn't want you to do the things that are better or best. And so we have to understand this. That's what he's saying. The soldier, you know, if you're in a war and you're fighting a war, you can't be in business too. You can't be running a business and fighting a war at the same time if you're a soldier. You've got to be fighting the war. It's all about the fight that you're in, not some side project. We have to understand that. That's what's going on. I want you to think about this just a second. Consider how a soldier, and I want to say an elite soldier, is trained. Have any of you ever watched the deal that that shows what it's like to become a Navy SEAL? You know, some people die. I had a very unique chance. I've probably shared this story with you before, but I want to share it again because this, it really speaks to what's going on here. And I hope I can do it completely in control. When I was just graduated from law school, I was up in, I came up to Dallas and I started working as a lawyer and I had some friends, Ed and Jeannie Farrell. Some of you know Ed and Jeannie. And uh, Jeannie called me and she said, I would like you to come over to our house Friday night to eat dinner. And, you know, this was back 1978. So there's a few things that I don't remember as clearly as I would like to. But she said, this general, and she called him by name, of the Israeli Defense Force is going to be there and hosting dinner. And I said, I would love to, to be able a chance to talk to him. And so I went, we ate dinner. People were shooting questions at him, and I kind of waited because I was the young guy, you know, and, and I didn't want to appear too precocious. But when it was my turn, I said this, Sir, I have noticed something. I want you to confirm for me if you can, and then tell me why. It seems like there's a lot of other countries send soldiers to do something, and, and they may accomplish it, may not. But they don't just come in, get it done, immediately and are so successful and it seems to me the most successful soldiers in the world are from Israel. Why is that? And he looked at me a second. I think he was trying to determine whether I was asking him like a lawyer or asking him as a believer. And uh, he concluded the second. He said, let me tell you a story. A number of years ago, I was out in California and I was trying to raise money for Israel for their protection our government wasn't supporting Israel the way they should have. But he was out there and he said, I was in, lived, staying in a very rich California man's house, businessman's house. And he had a number of children and one of his sons who was 14 years old came up to me and he says, General, I would like to ask you a favor. And he said, well, what is it? I'll try and help. I want to immigrate to Israel. I'm not sure you would. No, I do. And he said, General said, I said to him, okay, let me see what I can do. And immediately went and talked to his father. And they came up with a plan. The general told him, what I'm going to do is I'm going to let that kid do that. And then I'm going to put him in the toughest frontier kibbutz you can find. He's used to living a soft, easy life over here. He'll want to come home and he'll contact me real soon. So the young man, 14 years old, immigrates to Israel. He gets into one of the northeastern kibbutz where, you know, there's a lot of militant activity where life is tough, there's not as much water as you need, and he's living out there, and the general expected to hear from him in about three months, not, not a word, six months went by, not a word, nine months, 12 months went by, not a word, and the parent, the dad called the general and said, well, have you heard from him? Well, no, I haven't. 
And I've checked on him, and he seems to be thriving in that kibbutz. And he's been given positions of leadership. But let me tell you, pretty soon, you know, he's going to get to be 17, and there's universal suffrage here in Israel. And he'll have to go into the army. And so that's when he'll call me, and he'll want to go home, and I'll send him home. Well, they waited. And universal subscription time came, and he didn't hear from the boy. And the boy became a member of the Israeli army. And he went through basic training. And the father had called. The general said, you know, I don't understand. He, he, he's, I checked with his officer. He's doing fine. In fact, he's one of the best recruits they've got. And he said, he hung up the phone. And a week later, he got a call from the boy. He said, I have to come talk to you. And the general said, okay. You know, and the, the boy marches in his office and stands at, you know, and the general says, at, at ease. And he said, uh, what can I help you with? Because I'm not a natural born citizen, they won't let me in to the Israeli paratroopers. And the general said, but you know, that's the most elite fighting group we've got. The training of that is unbelievable. And he said, I know, but that's the favor I'm asking of you. General thought about it and he said, let me see what I can do. And not long after that, he was allowed into the paratrooper school. At the end of that extensive training, and let me tell you, they train in such a way that they suffer great hardship so that the hardships in the battle won't be as difficult. And this is a topographical map. The last thing they do is they let them out up here near Mount Hermon. They're on the east side of the Jordan River Valley. They have a certain very short period of time to make it down here to Masada. They don't have a rifle or a handgun. They have a knife and they have a canteen full of water and some medical supplies, and they have to make it. Somehow they have to live off the land, get down through enemy territory here, either cross over the Jordan somewhere here or come around the other end of the Dead Sea to make it to Masada. When they get to Masada, they've got to scale that fortress and make it to the top. When they do, and if they do that successfully, they will then be entered into the paratroopers. They'll be given two things, their own copy of the Torah with their name on it and their own M16. Now, the general wasn't sure what was going to happen, but he said, I went down to Masada. Now, let me show you Masada. Some of you know it. This is from the ground up, and that's what Masada looks like. Maybe the finest natural fortress anywhere in the world. If you look at it from an aerial view, uh, this is what it looks like. Rather imposing, would you not say? I know that if you're going to climb up Masada, this is the way that you have to go up through there and then cut back through here. And then it's when it starts getting really tough and you go up that way. It is an extremely difficult climb, I can tell you. I know because I climbed it. But I was well fed and well taken care of before I attempted to do that. And I believed in the position of it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. But the general was up there at the top of Masada to see what would happen. And he talked to the commanding officer, said, have you seen this? You might look over there. He walked over basically to the side, right over where you come over. And he said he found this boy with a full pack lying flat on the ground on his face, covered in sand. Every muscle in his body was spasming from the lack of salt, lack of water. But he had made it to Masada. And the general said, that's why Israeli troops win. That's why they're better than anyone else. It's not because their body is trained. It's because their heart is trained. 
Now, if troops train like that to fight for a human nation, how should we train to fight for the Lord God? Now, some say, wait a second, Doug. You're talking like we're at war. Let me ask you this. Is our country at war? Is the church at war? When did that war start for the church? How about 33 AD? It did. The church is at war. And we're at war. Is persecution coming? Is hardship coming? Is loss coming? Well, should we seek to just run away? You sure? What about should we make like an ostrich and bury our head in the sand and say nothing's really going to happen to us? Or should we become collaborators with the enemy like some people we talked about earlier? Well, if not, Bob, what happens to a man who gets in a fight but says, I'm not fighting? You lose. Uh, you know, my mother used to try to tell me, well, just walk away, Doug. Just walk away. And then they jump on your back and you're flat on the ground before you have a chance to fight. That's what happens. She wasn't very good at fighting. Yes, ma'am. Um, there was a group here from Brazil yesterday, and I was able to talk to one of the they were a Christian bunch that were touring a bunch of um, churches in Texas. And I was able to talk to her, and I said, what do you think about the new president that was elected? Their biggest fear is that the Christians will now be persecuted immensely. She is coming all over the world. It's coming, but it's coming here. We used to say, well, it's all over the world, but not in the United States. Now it's coming. It's, it should be clear. Yeah. There's a new book out, No Reason to Hide by Lutzer, which Lutzer. is all about deception and going on in this country right now. It is. So before we finish, we ought to answer this question. What should we do? What should we do? Three things that we must become proficient at. You need to become proficient at. You think about it. What good is a soldier if he doesn't know how to shoot? Not, not good. Uh, do you want uh, your house to be threatened and the police sends a guard and you go out to the guard? Well, how long have you been in the force? Well, I just joined yesterday. Have you had any training with your handgun? Well, no, but I figure I'll figure it out when the time comes. In fact, do you know how to cock this thing? You know, you don't want somebody like that. God didn't want somebody like that either. So what are we to do? Three things. Number one, we've got to learn how to appropriate the grace strength that our Savior offers us. How do we get that strength? He wants to give it to you. He wants to imbue you with his strength. But there's something about cleanliness that's involved. You don't ever drink out of a glass that has a cockroach at the bottom. Julie's favorite example of mine. You don't want to do that. God doesn't want to fill his power into a vessel that's dirty, that's gross. Number two, we have to equip ourselves with scriptural truth. We need to be about teaching. You, you know something I have learned as I have taught, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way. I always learn more than you do because I, I have to study it and prepare it. I, in fact, I even prepare for questions that sometimes get asked and sometimes don't, part of my legal training. But we've got to equip ourselves with scriptural truth. You need to be about that. Does that mean you can get it by just coming and studying the scripture on Sunday morning? You mean you mean more than that? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Number three, we need to prepare ourselves like soldiers for the hardship to come. 
It's one thing to deal with hardship if you know it's coming. It's a whole other thing if you let it surprise you. It is coming. That's not because I'm a prophet, I can say that. It's because the Word of God, and when we get into Timothy here, you're going to see it because it talks about in the latter days. Now, when we get to that, in the latter days, you have to understand something. Paul is talking to Timothy in what dispensation? The dispensation of the church. He's not talking about the millennial dispensation. He's not talking about the last seven years of the Jewish dispensation. He's talking about the latter days of the church's dispensation. And I am convinced that we're living in it. Got to get ready. This is going to tell us you're going to see portrait after portrait of how you need to be prepared, the type of people that we need to be and how we need to prepare ourselves. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could gather together here. I thank you for having your Holy Spirit here to teach us. Help us, Father, to be strong and to understand what grace is really about for us after we've been saved. I pray, Father, that you will help us to be trustworthy as you give us and entrust this scriptural treasure to us, that we will be faithful in sharing it with others. Give us ways to do it. Help us to understand who we need to be about and what we need to be sharing. Father, I pray that you'll bring a revival to our nation and turn the hearts of our people back to you, remove the hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.